Hey there, welcome to our AP Legal Zone podcast brought to you by AP Lawyers. We are your top fix for all weekly law updates, including family, immigration, wills, and estates law. Just a friendly reminder we are not your lawyers, and everything contained in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and not to be construed as legal advice. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about our new episodes. Hello, I'm Angela Princewell. And I'm Shereen Abdi. And our topic today is imputing income. Um, it's a continuation of our last podcast where we had talked about imputing income, but we focused on um, intentional underemployment or unemployment. For further context, um, imputing income is governed by Section 19 of the Child Support Guidelines, so whether federal or provincial. And um, I know Shireen had kind of gone over what imputing income is in the last podcast, I think. But anyway, I'm just going to have you do that again. So what really, when we when we say imputing income, um, what does that even mean? It really just means that, you know, there's your, the income that you're presenting is not a true reflection of your income. And so therefore... Because of multiple reasons, mm-hmm. which we'll go over today, along with um, intentional underemployment or being unemployed, that your employment could be deemed higher. Your income, it, you mean? Sorry, your income <laughs> can be deemed higher than it actually is by the court. Yes, and, and really that's all we're talking about. And so there's enumerated factors um, in in the child support guidelines that you know can kind of guide. Um, the reasoning as to whether or not income, imputed income is appropriate in the circumstances. So since we're, we, we already talked to death about the intentional underemployment, let's talk about the other factors. So what I'll do is I'll just kind of list them out and then Shirin and I will take them um, one at a time. So one is that a spouse is exempt from paying federal or provincial income tax. Uh, the spouse lives in a country that has effective rates of income tax that are significantly lower than those in Canada. It appears that income has been diverted, which would affect the level of child support to be determined under the guidelines. The spouse's property is not reasonably utilized to generate income. The spouse has failed to provide income information when under legal obligation to do so. The spouse has unreasonable. Um, the spouse unreasonably deducts expenses from income. The spouse derives a significant portion of income from dividends, capital gains, or other sources that are taxed at a lower rate than employment or business income, or that are exempt from tax. And the spouse is a beneficiary under a trust and is or will be in receipt of income or other benefits from the trust. So. Yeah, if you got any of that, you're really good. So let's start from, um, you know, imputing income because the person is exempt from paying federal or provincial taxes. Can I just say this person is just like really lucky? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? Because you have to factor in the fact it's sometimes like there are child support payors that don't live in Ontario, or Mm -hmm. if they do, for example, paying, you know, federal or provincial tax, being, you know, indigenous, um, and then, but let's say it's a different example where someone is in a different jurisdiction, such as, you know, in the UAE, where we know that they don't pay taxes. Um, and so we need to factor in the fact that they're receiving their tax, of course. Or their income tax <laughs> their rate. Their income tax rate, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, absolutely. Because and, and if you're wondering why that matters as well, it's because the guidelines already factor when when child the, the guidelines has provide table that that sets the um, base amount of child support that's payable, and that already factors in people having to pay a certain amount of taxes on their on their income. So if they're not paying those taxes, then their income would need to be grossed up. So in this in this example, the income imputed is really more of an attempt to gross up the income because it means you know they're not having um, taxes deducted from their income and all of that. So um, okay, next one. The spouse lives in a country that has effective rates of income tax that are significantly lower than those in Canada. Yeah, that's really good part. So, for example, if you live in the states or different parts of, I mean, I'll call it the states, uh, I mean, they'll have lower income tax rates than here in Canada. So, it would be, I mean, depending on the circumstance, it would be appropriate to factor in, you know, the benefit to that payor um, when calculating child support. Absolutely. And, and this is almost like the the reason we just talked about earlier as well. It's the, it's the same thing, you know, the guidelines contemplate you paying taxes at a, at a certain rate, right? So if you're making 100000 and you're imagining that your marginal rate is 29%, and do not, that's not tax information. <laughs> By the way, I'm just throwing out numbers. Um, you know, it means the net amount you have is X amount of dollars, and so the table sets your child support or fixes your child support based on, on the expectation that you have a certain net income. So if you are not paying any taxes at all, and you or your paying less than a person will, then that's an issue. And, and something I should add here actually with the table is it, it um, reflects the reality of different provinces, right? So the, the, the child support guidelines is created, it, the amounts are different. So a person, you know, a child in Alberta would be receiving a support amount that's different from a child in Ontario because the effective tax rates in, in the provinces are different. And the for, cost of the living is also different, so the child mm -hmm. support guidelines would account for, for all, really of all of that. And I know people often, and this is a very sticky one for a lot of people, people are already for, for most um, people, the net income they receive is hard enough to live with, live by, right? So, you know, you're making... I don't know, a hundred thousand, and then you're taking home seventy. I don't even know if you're that lucky, but let's—we're just doing our numbers here, so let's do that. And and so for a lot of people, by the time they have to pay the rent that we're seeing these days across the GTA and your car payments, there are still student loans for some people that are making that level of income. For a lot of people, it meant years of education to get there. So when you factor all of that in, to tell them to now pay second amount of child support from their net income, it just, they think we're that's making a mistake. Yes, yes, exactly. Perfect. That's a very perfect way to put it, actually. I like how you put that. So we're telling them to pay based on their gross income, but they're only getting their net, and it's from their net that they're going to pay this child support. And I would say nine out of 10 clients think we're making a mistake sometimes. <laughs> They would often tell me, oh, what I get bi-weekly is X amount of dollars, thinking I made a mistake by using their And they're just, I think, surprised, like, how the system works just because it's, they seem, it's deemed as unfair. You know, mm -hmm. it's not factoring in my cost of living. It's not factoring how am I supposed to live if I pay child support. Trust me, if you could not afford to pay child support, 
the calculation would, would tell you. I don't know if I could trust I mean, you on. I don't know if I could trust you on that one. Like, I could literally. But no, but I, is like, is I don't know. It might not be on you, hardship. It's just a lifestyle change. And it's interesting because I literally had this conversation today and, and my client is just going through the numbers again. How does it add up? And, and was wondering if we could bring it up in the context of emotion that, that's coming up on the matter. And I think what I, what I said, and again, I'm, I'm known for being straight up with my clients so that we, I, I always have that relationship. And I said, the courts don't care if you have to no longer rent your home. Like, so then where would I see the kids? I, I, I don't know. You might, they, the courts don't care. Like, you could be homeless. You could maybe get a one bedroom and all three of you, you know, sleep on air mattresses. Like, it seems, it seems callous, but it's, the amount is fixed. Yeah. And undue the obligation is priority first to the children. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, you mentioned undue hardship and it's, undue hardship is a very, high threshold to meet as well, right? Most people don't. Like the courts would look at the table amount, the income exists, you have to deal with things. It might mean no more wine for you. It might mean you have to maybe bike more and, and save money on gas. Like There is a lifestyle change. So I think what I'm trying to say, is I recognize that there is some... There's some level of hardship there. It's, it's hard to make the numbers work, and I yeah. understand. But the tables are the tables, and you will have to make adjustments in other areas, but child support is kind of non-negotiable that way. So um, let's go to and then as the next reason. Where, um, and this one is, it appears that income has been diverted, which would affect the level of child support to be determined under the guidelines. Okay. Whatever, you diverted income, it's so long. Yeah, um, I, I think maybe I'll illustrate it by an example, because I had this recently come up. Um, so my, I had a client um, who owns a corporation with her father, but she diverts the payments to her father as a, an employee, so he's essentially the only one being paid from the corporation, hmm. and she's not. So, yeah. or, you know, another example is if it usually happens in the context of like most self-employed individuals mm -hmm. that have the ability to, you know, divert money to maybe sources that they don't want people to know so they don't get a true determination of their income. Mm -hmm. I think that's the simplest way I can explain it. Yeah. Maybe you could do better. No, no, I think you, I think you got it. Even, um, I'll just add another example, which is just safe spouses, for example. So if, if the payor, if the support payor has repartnered, then you could just pay your spouse and then, That's you know, even more and you might even be very, it's so common. Like if you were capable of earning a hundred thousand, then you, you split the income. Now your household still gets a hundred thousand, but the new spouse is absolutely unconnected to the corporation doing nothing, but your support is now based on 50,000 rather than the one. And that also ties into making maybe your tax rate as well because you're diverting income so you pay less taxes yes yeah. yep all of that so in those circumstances uh if 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 your books are being you know reviewed which would be typical where support is a contested issue if it i notice that here it says if it appears so we don't it does, no one needs to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt right this is not criminal law it's family law they're not trying to get you for tax purposes they're really just trying to make sure that as much money as possible flows for support. Um, the other um, 
reason um, income is imputed is the spouse's property is not reasonably utilized to generate income. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For, um, me, for example, like, mm -hmm. you know, if you're dealing with a party that's now received an equalization payment um, and it's a significant sum and, you know, they haven't used those funds to, it, you know, put into assets that are income generating. So they've effectively not generated income when they've had an ability to do so. When mm -hmm. they can, they just don't want to or mm -hmm. have not and, and not being reasonable about it. So, you know, you have an obligation to be self-sufficient um, and you also have an obligation to make sure that you're using as much, or, or if you have income generating assets and that you receive from like an equalization payment, you have to be mindful that those resources should go to increasing and generating more income. Yeah, I wish I could say I've used this section in a different context, but I think that's the same way I've, I've used it. It usually comes up for me um, when we're trying to vary. I think I've only used them in the context of varying spousal support and how I've used it in the past is if my client's being asked to um, pay more, that's always a question I, I raise, right? I'm looking at ARIA's, or even sometimes people park money in a TFSA and, and hey, I'm, I'm no investor, but there's a reason why I'm a lawyer. So, you know, what is there, if you're parking your money in a TFSA that's not generating any income for you, that's great. But when you're asking someone to increase um, their support, then the question becomes, well, there's high interest yield in GICs, for example. Why didn't you put this money in a bond? And we, I would put, I mean, my go-to would be to get an actuary or some other financial professional that can give me sort of a calculation of how much year over year you can get while still protecting that that asset, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a TFSA is just at least it's generating some, we hope, some form of interest. I you have put it in your checking account. Yeah. That has no, there's no interest. And they're paying back fees, and bank yeah. fees. Don't do that. Yeah, so um, I, I think that the, 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 the idea that there is if you have assets, and it may not even, um, let's not give the impression that it's only assets that you get through equalization. If you've received severance pay, for example, early retirement payouts, whatever, when we're looking at all of your sources of income, you know, you may still be employed, but then if there's money sitting somewhere uh, that could that you could use in increasing your, your income, and again, as I said, I use this mostly in the context of varying support, then we'll look into, into that. So do be financially responsible with your monies, otherwise you could find income being imputed to you um, in those circumstances. Okay, so next one. The spouse fails to provide income information when under legal obligation to do so. I love this one. This is the most, I think out of all <laughs> here, like this is the most yes. utilized one and honestly the most common. Mm -hmm. So in, in a situation like this, so for example, let's say, you know, your you've now been separated historically, your partner's made, or you, you've been privy to the fact that your partner's made you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars, and just refuses to provide income disclosure. Mm -hmm. So, in that case, you know, you essentially would put forth the obligation that he has the financial, or he or she has an obligation to provide their disclosure. And when refusing to do so, the court in court can impute income to you at either the level of income that you've been earning, or what they believe based on the evidence that's put before the court. 
Yes. I have actually even gone on LinkedIn in the past and seen what people in similar positions are making. Yes. And what ought to be making. Yes. If there's a capacity issue and someone, you know, has the ability to earn income and then you find comparables. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't know what the actual income of the person that you're dealing with is, so you can estimate based off, you know, similar situations. I had um, I had a support payer, and, and, and that, in this case, I was um, asking for for the ex-wife, and the payer had repartnered their spousal support obligations that are being looked at at this point, and, um, you know, payer makes absolutely no money, so in this case, um, the wife was now the owner of their rental properties that are income generating is just the one that's making money and now support payer is just so broke makes no money but then you look at um his linkedin profile he's 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 you know part of these um financial um organizations he's speaking at these events and so i mean again how much could you make as a speaker and it's it's not impossible that the speaking engagements where we're volunteer i do i do a lot of speaking myself i don't get paid for it so but if, again when you're not providing income information it would not be unreasonable for someone to say well if you were speaking at these events what's a reasonable amount that you would get paid for for doing that sort of, of work right and taking everything into all of those factors in looking at their qualifications what a person with their training would earn we were able to get like reasonable um, income imputed. And you know what I find that's interesting? You would you could follow up a hundred times with a person to provide disclosure regarding their income. They don't. And then when a court orders um, makes a support order based on what they think is a reasonable in, um, income based on the evidence that you've provided, then the person turns around now and wants to change um, child or spousal support, right? Now they're, they want to be involved. And just do be very careful because it's not easy to change imputed income, especially say in the context of child support, for example. So if you're making $50,000 and you don't provide disclosure and we succeed in getting your income imputed to 100000 it just means that the year after that, don't come saying, well, this year my income is 40000 so let's baby child support. It, it may not work like that. You may just find you're most likely going to be stuck on that imputed amount of income until a court changes it. And, and courts really don't don't like that because they would give you lots of opportunities to provide your disclosure. And, and if you don't want to be part of it, it's, it's pretty hard. You might be successful changing your income going forward, but to retroactively change it saying, well, I never made $100,000. Here's my actual income. It was 50. Um, it's going to be hard. It's, I mean, nothing's impossible, but it will be hard to to do, right, to, to reduce that support retroactively. Okay, so the next one is um, the spouse unreasonably deducts expenses from income. Another common one. Yes. Usually for self-employed individuals um, and those who own corporations or direct shareholders, this is where you could, we call it creative accounting. So, <laughs> I'll say it is what your income for, you know, the income tax act, CRA purposes is, is not going to be the income that we take at face value just because CRA um, has accepted it and the government's fine with the income taxes and you don't, you don't get reassessed. That's not <laughs> what we're looking at. 
we look toward we look beyond that we look at the expenses that you're claiming um, whether or not they're reasonable and there's a long integrated list about what is reasonable what isn't reasonable like for example the most common one are you know vehicle expenses yeah so you know it's it's unfair to have one party be able to deduct all of these expenses you know just or that are basic to the cost of living you know mm -hmm. um rental expenses you know if they're especially if they're operating out of their own home yeah. you know um mm -hmm. and then their their travel expenses which is really just to and from their work which is the same <laughs> expense that you know a support recipient would have so it, it in, the, in our situation it would be unfair to just arbitrarily be able to deduct that but not give that same credit to the other individual yeah i i think you you pretty much covered that okay <laughs> Um, the next one, the spouse derives a significant portion of income from dividends, capital gains, or other sources that are taxed at a lower rate than employment or business income or from tax exempt sources, I guess. So why, um, so I, I'll, I'll tackle this, I'll tackle this one. So if you're, the reason why income may be imputed to you under these, um, circumstances is the, it just comes back to taxes, really. And maybe we should have discussed this at the same time we were talking about the um, significantly lower taxes outside of Canada or whatever. But when you're receiving, if it's an if it's eligible, um, well, without turning this into some kind of income tax class, um, dividends and capital gains can potentially be taxed at a different rate than employment income. And so, um, if if you're so I'm going to let me just throw numbers again because I find it's easier for me to describe things that way. If you make a hundred thousand dollars in capital gains income, you only fifty percent of that could get taxed. And but if you make a hundred thousand in um, what's it called employment income, the entire one hundred thousand gets taxed. So you you can see why it's reasonable to have income imputed um, to someone. In, in those cases. Also, if you have a business and a, the business is retaining a lot of income and you're just drawing maybe just a little bit to meet your most basic daily needs, well, you might be paying, I don't know what it is, I'm not sure what it is anymore these days. I think it's about 20% for corporate, um, for corporation taxes. So if you think about that, 20% on say $100,000 versus someone that might be, you know, at 30, 40%, that difference is significant and would be helpful um, to to a child. So if that's the case, then your income could be imputed. And, and this is one reason why people, you know, in the family law context, people get frustrated. And it's like, well, I've given you my notice of assessment. And why can't you get all the information? And yes, sometimes it's on the notice of assessment, but sometimes we just want to see a little bit more. You know, with with capital gains, where there are losses, for example, that were offset against those gains, you know, your dividends, if we just see dividends, it might not tell the full story. Maybe it's ineligible dividends and maybe it's taxed at a different rate and things like that. So the income tax returns um, would usually show that. And um, but uh, bottom line is you might find income being imputed to you through no fault of yours, but just because you're making your income in a very smart and tax efficient way. <laughs> the last one we're going to talk about is the spouse is a beneficiary under a trust and is or will be in receipt of income or other benefits from the trust. And this 
again, is this is not one that I've actually ever, I don't remember if I've ever had to work with this. So Shirin's not in, it's something that we've, we've had to deal with. So, um, oh yes, now I do remember. <laughs> okay, so in any case, again, it still all comes down to sort of the sources of income, the taxes that um, can be applied towards that income, the kind of level of control you have on some of these incomes and how, um, you know, you're able to deduct expenses that might be reasonable for tax purposes, but might not necessarily give a true picture of the funds that are available to you to pay um, support. So those are some examples. Now that's what's enumerated. Obviously, if something is close to these reasons, it will fall under the, the head of imputing income. And so if you're a support recipient and you think that just going by what your spouse or ex was saying about their income is not appropriate in your case, then um, you know, do know that imputing income is something. Now there's there's um Shirin's favorite um times of or reason for imputing income is cash income. When she just hears certain professions and she hears cash, it's like, yeah, impute income. So that's not obviously not one of the enumerated um actors under the act, but as you can tell, it, it could fall under any one of that on one of these reasons, right? You could easily it's tax free for one. It's, yeah, so if I, yeah, I guess actually we could just call it it's yeah, tax it's that tax exempt. Kind of may fall under here is if you're consistently receiving a sum of money from like let's say your parents mm -hmm. every let's say it's every two thousand dollars you get monthly and that income might be imputed to you and be considered income for support purposes. So parents and if, be if, careful. I know and if Sharon's working against you, I can also see her saying, Well, we know the parents gave you two thousand dollars a month and it's twenty four thousand dollars a year, but it's tax free. So I wanna gross up that amount and make your support even more. So watch out guys. But anyway, that's all we could you know, we, we just wanna say be careful. Um the income we know the income tax doesn't always um tell the whole story. So there are circumstances where in imputed income would be appropriate. And if you're someone that income is being imputed to you, that's fine, talk to us. We might, if it doesn't make sense in your circumstances, we will, you know, make that clear to the other side and kind of clear things. If it's reasonable, we would let you, we like letting people pick their battles, right? If we think ultimately all the signs point to income being properly imputed, then would also, help negotiate um, a reasonable amount out of that. So I'm not sure you have anything else you want to add on this subject. No, I think that covers everything. All right, guys, it's been a pleasure. And until next time, bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening and joining us in the AP Legal Zone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes by searching AP Legal Zone on anywhere you watch podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast today so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about any new episodes. Mm -hmm.